Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening. My name is Professor Jenny Brand Miller from the University of Sydney's Charles Perkins Centre. I have the privilege tonight of introducing our speaker. Many of you who are in science and nutrition will be aware of Professor David Ludwig or Ludwig and um, the research that he has published. David and I first conversed by email back in 1999 when he first published a paper on low glycemic index diets, low glycemic load um, in adolescence with overweight and obesity. And we have been in regular correspondence ever since. At the moment, he is here on a mini sabbatical for the whole of November, or nearly all of November, with his, with his wife and family, and enjoying the wonderful life um, that you can have if you have an apartment on the edge of Manly Beach. So he's, he's seeing the best of Sydney. I just wish, wish it was a little bit warmer for him. But he assures me the water is a good temperature. All right, so David is an endocrinologist and also a paediatrician at the Boston Children's Hospital. And he has the rank and holds the rank of Professor of Paediatrics at Harvard Medical School and professor, professor of Nutrition at Harvard School of Public Health. So I can say there are very few people who have such a collection of, of um, expertise and wisdom. He is... Um, the founder of a program at, at Boston Children's Hospital for Overweight Children. It's called OWL, Optimal Weight for Life, and it is um, one of the oldest and largest multidisciplinary clinics um, that look after overweight children in the US. So many of you will know that David's research is focused on metabolism and hormones and body weight, not only in children but also in young adults and older adults. He is recognised for the development of a low glycemic load diet that combined both lower carbohydrate intake with low glycemic index carbohydrates. And Time magazine describes him as an obesity warrior. Um, he has fought for fundamental changes in um, American food policy. So he is also, um, has also been honored by the award of many grants from the National Institutes of Health and has published over 150 scientific articles. So tonight he's going to speak to us, and you will also note that he is the best-selling author of several books. And they will be for sale, this one will be for sale, um, after the presentation at about 7.25 tonight, and David will be signing copies if you would like to purchase one. So. 
thank you very much for coming along. We really appreciate your presence, and I welcome David to the stage. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for the kind introduction, Jenny. And uh, you know, it's always a bit of a risk to give a nutrition lecture at dinner time, especially when you're not serving any food. So I will try to uh, keep things on time so you can get home uh, and have a, a late supper. So according to the first law of thermodynamics, energy can't be created or destroyed. Applied to living systems gives us the familiar equation calorie intake minus calorie expenditure equals calories stored and in the human body, most of our excess calories are stored in fat. We have limited capacity to increase our muscle size or glycogen stores. So we can think of that right side of the equation as change in body fatness, or technically called adiposity. Now, the, according to the conventional interpretation of this physical principle, obesity represents the individual's failure to control their energy balance. So in an environment with ubiquitous, tasty foods, it's easy to overconsume. And in our modern environment, without enough physical activity opportunities, we're sedentary, we don't burn off those calories, and instead they build up as metabolic fuels, energy-rich fuels like glucose and lipids in the bloodstream, and then get forced into fat cells, making us gain weight, and ultimately, potentially, developing obesity. So we've talked about how this law of thermodynamics says that it's really up to the individual to control their calorie balance by simply eating less and moving more, resisting the temptations around us. This conventional view puts the emphasis squarely on the individual for this reason. The United States Department of Agriculture advice on weight management says reaching a healthier weight is a balancing act. The secret is learning how to balance your energy intake and your energy output. Um, although I'm going to argue that that's a really very well-kept secret. And if you like the notion of energy balance, you're going to love a low-fat diet. Fat has more than twice the calories of protein or carbohydrate. And so according to the United States First Food Guide Pyramid, which I, unfortunately is, is, this really affected the world to quite a degree, we were told to consume all fat sparingly. You know, things like nuts, avocado, olive oil, fatty fish, all that sparingly, and instead load up on these mostly highly processed carbohydrates. In the first pyramid, this was six to 11 servings of this stuff a day. And the focus on reducing dietary fat was squarely because of considerations of energy density, this twice the calories per gram of protein and fat. The Surgeon General's report, uh, published in the 1980s, specifically targeted reduction of dietary fat as the single most important target uh, in nutrition, whereas things like sugar were considered to be of secondary concern just for vulnerable populations like children to prevent dental caries. 
Energy balance teaches that all carbohydrates are good and all fats are bad. Now, these are quotes from in leading dietitian journals from the 1990s, during the low-fat era, by some of the leading nutritionists in the world. For example, one said, when people are allowed to eat from a range of high-fat or high-sugar foods, passive overconsumption occurs only with fat. It follows that fat promotes overconsumption, whereas sucrose, sugar, prevents it. Another quote, the evidence intriguingly suggests that it's specifically an increase of sugars, not complex carbohydrates, you know, not beans or whole grains, whole kernel grains or the like, but it's sugars that dilute fat energy. And a third quote, by decreasing the ratio of fat to carbohydrate, in other words, by just eating more carbohydrate, nutrient balance can be achieved without paying attention to the quality of the carbohydrates. Just eat more of all of the carbohydrates. This was state-of-the-art in the 1990s. And as a result, the government, in its Healthy People 2000 goals, which was published around 1990, called on the food industry to create and market thousands of new processed foods that were low in fat and saturated fat, and thus high in processed carbohydrates. I mean, these are processed foods. We're not talking about fruits and vegetables here. So it's become a little fashionable these days for some, um, we, we might call apologists, to say that it's not the nutrition experts or the government's fault, of the, the poor quality of diet, the obesity epidemic. It's the industry's fault for marketing all these highly processed junk foods. And it's the public's fault for succumbing to that advertising. But the slide, the evidence I've just showed you suggests there's plenty of blame all around. In some sense, the industry was just responding to the calls from the nutrition experts in the government to make these processed foods. And the public thought that they were doing what they were supposed to when they ate the fat-free Twinkie and the thousands of other uh, low-fat, highly processed carbohydrates that flooded the food supply. Well, as a result of this, the, pr the proportion of carbohydrates in our diet increased. The proportion of fats decreased. You know, that's what was intended. But unfortunately, things didn't work out so well. And the obesity epidemic actually exploded during those years. And there's reason to believe that this isn't just an association. This is cause and effect. Meta-analyses of mostly smaller dietary trials, but by this point, scores or hundreds of them, consistently show that low-fat diets are inferior to all higher-fat comparison diets, whether that's a Mediterranean diet, a conventional low-carbohydrate diet, a very low-carb diet, or the granddaddy of all low-carb diets, the ketogenic diet, raising the possibility that our Recommendations made to the public over 40 years to decrease fat intake did more harm than good and directly contributed to the epidemic. We know, according to national surveys in the United States, that very few people can lose weight and keep it off following conventional approaches. Fewer than one in six uh, overweight adults with high body weight lost just 10% of their weight for just one year. So that's a pretty low bar when you think of the whole population. And that's just one in six. Among children, the situation is 
just as bleak. Most interventions are marked by small changes in weight or adiposity in substantial relapse. So we have to ask, why has this simple paradigm, just eat less, just eat a little less, just move a little more, why has it essentially failed in practice? Well, one obvious explanation is that it completely neglects virtually a century of research as to the biological basis of body weight. In fact, we know that body weight is controlled by a complicated overlapping set of regulatory systems involving hormones, metabolic fuel signals, neurological influences, connecting multiple organs, the brain, importantly the liver, and very importantly the fat cells, um, that tend to keep body weight uh, from changing appreciably in either direction. So of course genes have, play a role in determining who's at risk for obesity and who isn't. But regardless of an individual's baseline weight, with weight reduction, with calorie restriction, you'll lose weight temporarily, but the body will fight back. And it will fight back in predictable ways by increasing hunger and slowing down metabolism. And these primal biological responses are going to tend to push body weight back right back, right back to where it's starting. But the opposite is also true. When people, for example, in overfeeding studies, you know, they volunteer for what sounds like a great study, right? You know, you, you're going to get paid to eat a 500 or 1,000 extra calories a day of delicious foods. You know, who wouldn't want to be in that study? But once they, after a few days on that study, they quickly lose interest in, in food. They actually, food starts to become aversive. And their body's fighting back in the opposite direction with their metabolism speeding up, trying to get rid of those extra calories. So that when the overfeeding ends, body weight again comes right back down to baseline, suggesting we have a sort of body weight set point. That's kind of intuitively obvious to us, right? I mean, we have a certain weight, maybe it's climbing up a pound or two over the years, and that's important. But we have a certain weight. Like if you're 200 pounds, maybe you're overweight at 200 pounds, but you're not 300, you don't quickly go to 300 pounds. You know, it's in, in fact, it's just as difficult to go from 200 to 250 in a few months as it would be to go from 200 to 150. So if we do have this body weight set point, we have to ask two questions. First, why has the defended apparent body weight, the, the defended body weight, the body weight that a population maintains, why is that climbing year after year, beginning in the late 1970s and continuing in, in the United States right up to the present? Why is an average man who weighed 70 kilos in 1970, why is that man, that average man defending a body weight of 82 or 85 kilos today? What's changed? And most importantly, what can we do about it? Well, we know that this relationship between energy intake, energy expenditure, 
and calories stored in body fat, that that basic relationship can't be wrong. That's a law of physics. But maybe our assumptions about the direction of causality are at issue. In other words, maybe the arrows don't flow from left to right. They flow from right to left. Now, this alternative model called the carbohydrate insulin model doesn't violate the laws of thermodynamics. You know, it's still got that same relationship of energy intake increased, energy expenditure decreased, and fat storage. But, the, but this model has a profoundly different implication. And what's different here is that the, fuel, the circulating fuels in the bloodstream aren't increased, they're decreased. According to this model, something has triggered our fat cells to become anabolic, to suck in and hold on to too many calories. So there are too few in the bloodstream, and that's what the brain notes. The brain doesn't particularly care how, much cal how many calories are locked away in fat cells because they're not immediately available. The brain cares about how many calories are in the bloodstream to run its immediate metabolic needs. An interruption of calories and, or glucose going to the brain for just a second or two would cause a major problem. If that persisted for a few minutes, it would lead to loss of consciousness, seizure, and death. So the brain has all of these important regulatory systems designed to keep the calories in the blood at a um, uh, continuous, uh, as a steady, steady level. And one of those tricks is to make us hungry, because eating is a very fast way to raise the calories in the blood. And the other thing that the brain can make us do is conserve calorie expenditure. If there aren't a lot of calories in the blood, how are you going to feel? You know, tired. So you'll likely collapse on the couch. You probably will, will be disinclined to work out. And uh, in an um, autonomic sense, the brain can also control resting energy expenditure, the number of calories that your body is burning off just when you're lying in place. So from this perspective, if this alternative model is correct, then advice to eat less and move more that we've heard so many times is at best symptomatic treatment, which could actually make matters worse. If the problem is not enough calories in the bloodstream, then eating less and moving more will further lower those calories, explaining why people feel rotten and fall off diets long before their weight loss goals are even in sight. You know, we typically blame people for lack of willpower, you know, discipline, but maybe it's a biological issue. If it's a question of not having enough calories in the bloodstream, well, that's a battle between mind and metabolism most of us aren't going to be able to win. So what could be triggering our fat cells into this calorie storage overdrive? Well, an obvious player is the hormone insulin. You know, insulin is the, I call it the uh, miracle grow for your fat cells. Do you have miracle grow here? It's this product that you, it's heavily advertised in the United States. You put it on any kind of crop and it's supposed to make, you know, pumpkins go, grow twice as big. Well, insulin does that to fat cells. Insulin is our dominant anabolic hormone. It regulates the availability of all the metabolic fuels 
It stimulates fat synthesis and deposition and inhibits release of fat from the fat cells, among its many other actions. We know that uh, increased insulin action will predictably cause weight gain. A child with type 1 diabetes, given too much insulin, will gain weight. That's uh, you know, a very consistent clinical outcome. Whereas the opposite is also true. If that child with type 1 diabetes isn't given enough insulin, he or she will lose weight regardless of how much is being eaten, you know, three or 5,000 calories a day. In fact, when you give insulin, the same can be demonstrated in experimental animals. Give them low doses of insulin, they tolerate it very well, but they become hungry. They eat more and they get fat. Now, if you restrict their calories to prevent them from gaining weight, they still have too much fat. That insulin is directing whatever calories they're eating, too many of them, into the fat cells. And so the rest of the body, in effect, winds up starving, just according to this hypothesis. So what could be overstimulating insulin? Well, got the, that in the title here. The type and amount of carbohydrate in the food supply. Um, and in terms of uh, you know, amount, we, we know that that's gone up with the focus on the low-fat diet. Those, those calories have been replaced with carbohydrates. But they've been replaced not by whole fruits, vegetables, beans, and whole kernel grains. They've been replaced with fast digesting, in other words, high glycemic index carbohydrates. And that concept of glycemic index, uh, Dr. Brand Miller was um, instrumental in defining it, together with David Jenkins. Um, unlike other ways of classifying carbohydrate, this is something you can measure you know, in the laboratory. Um, and the, the basic idea here is that most processed carbohydrates, uh, white bread, white rice, potato products, prepared breakfast cereals, uh, most processed starches, are very quickly digested. They're essentially glucose in a long chain. And when that starch is processed, so we're talking about the difference between wheat berries that might have been consumed in the Mediterranean diet versus highly processed, highly milled wheat products, like prepared breakfast cereals. That starch then can be digested very, very quickly into sugar, causing blood sugar and insulin to rise very quickly within minutes after the meal. Contrast that to those other foods I mentioned, whole fruits that have to be more slowly digested because the sugars are, are ensconced within the fiber and it takes a while for those sugars to get absorbed. Or um, whole kernel grains or beans, which calorie for calorie have a more gentle effect on blood sugar and insulin. A related term is called glycemic load, and that is basically just the product of glycemic index and carbohydrate amount. So what that distinguishes is a carrot from a potato. You know, a carrot has been said to have a high glycemic index, but there's not a lot of carbohydrate in it. So you can eat a typical serving of carrots and not affect your blood sugar or insulin very much. But a white potato, especially at these you know, potato bars, you have these in Australia, 
you know, in the United States Sizzler restaurant, you can go in and get one of these massive russet potatoes. Uh, that is going to contain a lot of carbohydrate, fast digesting, and that's going to raise blood sugar a lot. So th these are basically uh, what I just, just to summarize what I just said. The glycemic load, according to a number of studies, including by Dr. Brand Miller, is the single best predictor of how your blood sugar will change, explaining about 90% of the variance. So let's have a look at what happens after eating meals varying in glycemic load. In this study, and this was the one that Jenny mentioned when she introduced me, we looked at 12 adolescents with obesity on three separate days. And we gave them on each of these days, breakfasts with identical calories, just varying in carbohydrate amount and type. One was a instant oatmeal with a little milk and sugar. Now that was actually a whole grain product in that we specifically had the oats milled ourselves to contain all of the fiber. But when you mill something for instant cooking, it's gonna digest very quickly. So that's high glycemic index. We compared that to steel-cut oats or Irish oats, um, which has the kernels mostly intact, and that's going to digest more slowly. And then a third meal was a vegetable omelet with fruit, and that had no starch at all. So this is going to be one of the very few technical slides, but it's just showing you what happens to insulin and its partner hormone, glucagon, during the five hours after the different meals. So as expected, insulin rose more after the instant oatmeal compared to the steel-cut oats or the vegetable omelet. And this were big differences. Remember, insulin is a, an extremely potent hormone. So eating the same calories but producing twice as much insulin could have a big impact on metabolism. But it gets worse because insulin is normally counterbalanced by glucagon. So glucagon is sort of like the yin to insulin's yang, or maybe it's the other way around. Uh, what glucagon does is prepare the body to release calories from storage sites. So normally you'd secrete a little bit of glucagon after eating, especially if you're eating protein, and that tells the liver you know, in a few minutes, the digestive tract, or in, a, in an hour or two, the digestive tract is going to start to empty of the calories in the meal. Get ready to release calories from the liver to support blood sugar. But if you, in fact, suppress glucagon, as happens after a high glycemic index meal, then we have a double whammy. Because this is saying store, 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 and then you've got nothing to counterbalance that. And so as a consequence, blood sugar, after this initial surge, following the instant oatmeal, comes down, 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 and then crashes a few hours later. And fatty acids, that's, you know, humans are dual fuel. You know, we've got this range at home, dual fuel. Humans are dual fuel. We burn carbohydrate, but we also burn fat, and fat is a critical fuel, um, especially when we're fasting. After the meal, fatty acids come down after 
all of these three different meals under the influence of insulin. But since there's more insulin, it stays suppressed longer. So at this critical time, a few hours, three, four hours after the meal, when you're either going to be satisfied or really hungry and wanting an extra snack or an extra large meal at your next eating opportunity. At that point, these two fuels are reduced, consistent with the hypothesis. And demonstrating that this is a key metabolic event, epinephrine, which is an emergency stress hormone. You know, you think of it as fight or flight, the saber-toothed tiger. But hypoglycemia, low blood sugar, low free fatty acids, is a major threat to our metabolism. So despite getting the same calories here, by four and five hours, epinephrine was surging after the high glycemic index meal. So how are you going to feel? Well, let's think about that 10-year-old boy who ate a bagel, fat-free cream cheese, and orange juice for breakfast. You know, that's what was recommended for so many years. You know, his blood sugar surged. Now it's 10 o'clock in the morning, and the blood sugar is crashing, and epinephrine is surging, and he's sitting in social studies class. Is he going to be paying attention to the teacher or maybe distracted, fidgety, you know, misbehaving, shooting spitballs at the kid next to him? And what neurological condition might the, might the teacher think that that kid has? ADD. Isn't it interesting, first of all, that the rates of ADD are going up with all of the processed carbohydrate we're eating and with the obesity epidemic? And what's the drug that we use for ADD? Ritalin, okay? Or it's amphetamine. Those are analogs of epinephrine. You know, it may be that, you know, that these drugs are operating on the same pathways that the body is trying to recruit during these times of hypoglycemia. And when we gave subjects free access to food, they consumed hundreds of extra calories after the high glycemic meal than after the other two meals. If a fraction of this difference were maintained meal after meal, day after day, it could explain much of the obesity epidemic. All right, what happens in the brain when blood sugar and the other calories in the bloodstream are crashing a few hours later? Well, we have a way of looking at that now, and it's called functional magnetic resonance imaging. In this study, we gave young men with high body weight two different milkshakes in a double-blind fashion. So neither they nor the researchers knew which was which. And we adjusted the sweetness of the two milkshakes with differing amounts of artificial sweetener so that they tasted the same. But one milkshake was made with a slow-digesting carbohydrate called uncooked cornstarch. It's just uncooked cornstarch has this property that it's hard to digest. It's slow. And it's actually used medically for that purpose. And we compared that to another corn product, corn syrup. So they both are just glucose-based. Neither has any fructose. And they both come from the same plant. But one is fast and the other is slow digesting. Otherwise, these milkshakes were identical. And we saw, as expected, this rise of blood sugar and insulin 
greater after the fast-acting milkshake, and then a tendency to drop off at four hours. And at that time point, people reported being hungrier after the high glycemic index milkshake. And then we did brain imaging at that four-hour time point. Mostly, these studies focus on what happens right after eating or within an hour. But that may miss a key time point. You, know, you may be feeling great for an hour after a high glycemic index meal, a high glycemic load meal, because your blood sugar is surging and your brain might be perfectly happy for a while. It's what happens a few hours later that's critical. And what we saw in every single subject in this study, so we had tremendous statistical power, is that one area lit up like a laser, and that's called the nucleus accumbens. I'm not a neuroanatomist. So I didn't know what the nucleus accumbens was either. The nucleus accumbens turns out to, it, it, uh, is, this, is uh, the center of the dopamine striatal pleasure and reward system. It's considered ground zero for the classic addictions of cocaine, heroin, alcoholism, raising a provocative idea of food addiction. Now, of course, we don't need heroin to live. We need food to live. But these highly processed carbohydrates, especially in large amounts, may be hijacking our pleasure and reward systems, not because they're so tasty. Remember, both milkshakes had the same sweetness. And whatever subtle taste sensations might have happened, they were four hours ago. These are persistent effects due to how these processed carbohydrates are affecting our metabolism. I mean, after all, think about it. You know, the common binge foods, popcorn, bagels, chips, you know, they're not so tasty, really. I mean, they're pretty monotonous. We crave them not because of their flavor, but we crave them because of what they're doing to our metabolism. When they make our blood sugar drop, it's going to activate the nucleus accumbens, and that's going to make us really want them. Or at least that's the implications of this study. All right, I'd like to take a brief detour into the animal laboratory, because with humans, there are always confounding factors. You can't control everything in a human's diet and environment, even for a single day. But you can in, in animal research. On the other hand, you know, humans aren't rodents. And so we have to interpret the findings from this sort of study that I'm going to show you cautiously. But then I'll try to loop back to humans and see if we can um, tell a, a complete story here. So in this study, we gave rats, called sprog dolly rats, that were at risk for developing type 2 diabetes. Again, identical diets, same protein, fat, and carbohydrate. Again, the difference being fast versus slow acting, high, high versus low glycemic index carbo, uh, carbohydrate. And we further controlled their calorie intake to keep the weight identical in both groups. We wanted to protect ourselves from the challenge that maybe one of the diets was a little tastier, and so as a result, the animals ate more of it. So we prevented that by keeping their weight the same. And on the left panel, you can see that these two groups, 
the low and the high glycemic index fed groups, that their weights, average weights were in fact the same throughout these 18 weeks, which is a long time for a rat. I mean, they live typically for a year and a half or two years, so you know, these would be you know, young adult rats by this point. But to keep the weights the same, we had to begin to restrict calorie intake in the high glycemic index group. So you can see this group wound up eating less than the, than the low glycemic index group. So what is that saying? You know, eating less to gain the same amount of weight means that its metabolism was slowing down, that other part of the energy balance equation. Okay, but at any event, we, at the same weight, we saw something striking, which is that the high glycemic index animals were 70% fatter. So same weight, but 70% more fat. So it's going to have a commensurate reduction in its lean tissue. Now, I'm glad that this is not a dinner lecture with food out, because this is going to be one graphic slide, my one graphic slide. So I, I apologize for those of you who uh, are not used to seeing animal research. But this makes a critical point. These two animals weighed the same. The one on the left ate low glycemic index starch and had virtually no belly fat. The one on the right's belly filled up with fat and it had sky-high diabetes and heart disease risk factors. There's no way to explain this finding based on the conventional all calories are alike concept. Let's think about it for a second. You know, the energy balance approach says if you're gaining too much weight, Eat less, go on a diet. Now that's hard to do and, uh, and succeed doing with humans. But we were able to do that with this animal. We put the high GI animal on a diet. We gave it fewer calories and we successfully prevented weight gain. And despite that, it was a metabolic mess. So this, if this is true in humans, it would really uh, undermine the whole basis of focusing on calories for weight control. So do these effects persist in humans? Well, we don't have the definitive studies yet, but I'd like to show you one study that addresses this point. Here we took 21 young adults with high body weight, and we first brought their weight down by 10 to 15% by restricting their calories. And so we know that they're gonna be hungry, and we also know their metabolism is going to be slowing down. Then we put them for a month at a time on one of three diets that differed greatly in nutrient composition. So one diet was a conventional low-fat diet, 20% fat, 60% carbohydrate. At the other extreme, we tested the phase one of the Atkins diet, which was very popular when we were designing this study. And that had a whopping 60% fat, you know, considered a nutritional nightmare at the time. And then we also had an intermediate low glycemic index or Mediterranean diet. So that had 40% fat and 40% carbohydrate. These two groups were controlled for protein. Both had the same amount of protein. The Atkins diet had 10% more protein consistent with its teachings. 
So we just have to keep that in mind in the interpretation. So again, uh, we had our participants at their usual weight, then low calorie feeding to bring the weight down, stabilize them at that new lower weight, and then put them for a month at a time in a random order on one of these test diets. And here's what we found. Before weight loss, our participants were burning off about 3,200 kilocalories per day. So these were big people, and that's a very high energy expenditure, as expected. With weight loss on the low-fat diet, calorie expenditure, which we measured by doubly labeled water or stable isotopes, plummeted by more than 400 calories a day. Again, consistent with prediction. So these folks are going to be metabolically stressed with that slowing metabolic rate. But on the low-carb Atkins diet, there was actually no significant decrease in energy expenditure at all from baseline. It was as if their bodies didn't know they had lost weight, despite that 10 to 15% decrease. The Mediterranean low glycemic index group was in the middle. So this dif difference, if it was persistent, would explain about 20, 15 to 20 kilograms of weight dis difference over about five years when um, that effect would reach um, steady state. All right, finally, um, I've shown you a bunch of relatively short-term studies and an animal study, but the key question is what happens over the long term in humans? That's what we really want to know. You know, do these effects persist? Are they going to be relevant for obesity? And I'll cut to the chase here and say, we don't know yet. You know, the pharmaceutical industry, if they get an exciting drug, can snap its fingers and get hundreds of millions of dollars in funding for a phase three clinical trial. But most nutrition research limps along on a tiny budget, despite the fact that it's actually much harder to do a nutrition study. I mean, we've got all of these other factors and lifestyle to consider. And when you decrease one aspect of the diet, you increase something else. Many things to control. I mean, a, a drug study is just a drug or a placebo. But so we don't have the definitive studies yet. Um, and we need better government funding. So that's my political message here. But we do have some, um, something to go on. And let's just see how we're doing on time. Okay, we'll be good. The behavioral studies, now these studies are too long to feed people everything they're eating you know, for 18 months or two years. So they're, they use a different technique than the studies I showed you. They're behavioral. They counsel people, they say, you're gonna eat a low fat diet and you're gonna eat a low carb diet and then you meet with a nutritionist uh, for several sessions, typically in groups, and then they give you some recipes, and then off you go. And that's what, what happened here in the Pounds Law study. So they got 800, that's a lot of people for a nutrition study, over two years, assigned to four diets that differed quite significantly by design in carbohydrate, fat, and protein. Now, these aren't as big a difference as you could 
as you can get. Um, they're not as big as the differences we studied in the last study I showed you. But these are significant. And if you don't see anything here, you could realistically, reasonably question whether the composition of the diet has any practical significance in a real life setting. So again, the intervention was individual and group counseling. And the result was no difference in body weight in any group. They all weighed the same after two years. They all lost just a small amount of weight, but there was no difference. And so this study has been cited thousands of times to support the contention that diet doesn't matter. You could lose weight on any diet, you just have to stick to it. You've heard that, haven't you? That conclusion does not logically follow from this study for one simple reason, that most of these behavioral studies suffer from a fatal flaw, which is poor compliance. They typically don't achieve their dietary targets. In pounds lost, the reported differences at maximum, it was checked many times through the two years, the maximum differences were reported as less than one half of the target differences. And even those relatively small differences are likely to be inflated due to something called social desirability bias. Let's say I recruit you to join a low-fat diet study, and I select you because you, know, you seem like a, a, a good study participant willing to do what's told. And then I tell you to follow a low-fat diet, and then I give you financial compensation for following a low-fat diet, and then I ask you, what are you eating? What are you going to say? <laughs> a low-fat diet. So that's a social desirability bias. When you look at the biomarkers, you know, the body doesn't lie. Mostly, it was blah. The triglycerides, which are a sensitive marker of carbohydrate intake, were not different among any group at any time point. Nitrogen excretion, which is a sensitive marker of protein intake, did not reach statistical significance between any group at any time point. So, you know, an alternative explanation is just that the study failed to test these diets. Now, let's say you were um, studying a promising new cancer drug. And, you know, maybe this drug could cure all childhood leukemia. It would be, you know, the greatest breakthrough of the century. And you designed a clinical trial, but it turned out that the, the kids who were supposed to get the drug, they didn't take it. They didn't take it as, as directed. Maybe it turned out to be too expensive, or maybe they couldn't find the pharmacy, or maybe they had some mild side effects that could have been managed, but they didn't get enough support. So would you then conclude that the drug failed? It should be abandoned? No. You conclude that the study failed. We need a better study. Somehow, we lack that logical analytic process when it comes to nutrition research. Fortunately, there are a couple of studies that do this better. One is the direct study, which was actually done in an Israeli nuclear power facility. I'm not kidding you. The, because this was a nuclear power facility, the employees would check in in the morning, they'd have to go through screening, and they'd stay on site all day and be fed their main meal of the day at lunch in the company cafeteria. So the researchers could be sure that at least one meal a day was compliant with the dietary assignments. And they got very good completion rates. Now this wasn't 
they didn't get complete compliance because you know, people still made their own meals at breakfast and at supper, but they, they got some compliance. They, got, they knew that they were changing at least half of what these people were eating. And now we see substantial and sustained differences in body weight with the biggest weight loss following the low-carb Atkins diet and a little bit of weight regain over two years, slower rates of weight loss, but then catch up on the Mediterranean medium-fat diet, so maybe the, the tortoise and the hare, so that they're exactly the same in two years. And then the low-fat diet was, again, inferior. And then lastly, Diogenes' study from Europe, um, which brought people's weight down first by 8%. And then once they lost weight, they would be randomized to diets varying in glycemic index and protein intake. And just to jump to the chase here, so this is looking at weight loss maintenance. They've already lost the weight. The low glycemic, low diet with more protein and low glycemic index showed perfect weight loss maintenance for six months. That's very rare. Usually by six months, you're seeing the weight going up, as you are here in the control group. And these other groups, the high glycemic load group, looked just like the control, gained the most weight. And the intermediate groups gained intermediate rates. So that's like a dose-response curve. That's a pretty impressive finding for a nutrition study. All right, so let's bring this back. So I've argued that according to an alternative model, the carbohydrate-insulin model, the action isn't on the left. The action's on the right. The processed carbohydrates that we're eating in excess are raising insulin and causing our fat cells to become too anabolic. They're sucking up too many calories, leaving too few for the rest of the body. That's why we get hungry. That's why our energy expenditure declines. But this isn't just about carbohydrate. It can provide, this model can provide a sort of an intellectual infrastructure for thinking about obesity in a different way, based on all of the other biological influences that we know can affect fat cells, fatty acid profile, protein type and amount, prebiotics, you know, the gut microbiome, uh, micronutrients, phytochemicals. Let's not forget sleep, stress, and physical activity, which all can influence insulin resistance and inflammation in fat cells. And then uh, a new concern is what's called endocrine-disrupting persistent um, pollutants. I'm not going to go through this, but these are scary-sounding. You don't have to know what any of these things are to be scared by the sounds of these things. These are all pathways that are affected by chemicals that pervade our environment, you know, in plastics and pesticides and other pollution. Um, lastly, I just want to touch base on outcomes beyond body weight. You know, we, we're concerned about obesity because its impacts on heart disease and diabetes. There are two very big low-fat diet studies, Women's Health Initiative and Look Ahead, all of them were well over $100 million, both of these. And they both failed to show any benefit of a low-fat diet 
to reduce heart disease. Despite the fact that these studies were biased to favor the low-fat diet. How were they biased? Because the low-fat diet group got lots of individual attention and support, and the control group just got written educational materials or less intensive treatment. So despite that fact, no benefit of a low-fat diet. Now, we need studies of that magnitude testing high-fat diets. We have small studies, and they, all, they, they seem to be encouraging in terms of lowering triglycerides and reducing CRP, inflammation, and the like. But we also have some compelling epidemiology. And this recently published study followed 125,000 adults for up to 32 years. And they found that the people eating the most fat had the lowest mortality rates. Now, this was, importantly, during the low-fat era when you'd expect the opposite, because the people eating low-fat diets tended to be more health-conscious. So they'd be more exercisers, fewer smokers, and so forth. This study suggests the opposite, that mortality was actually 19% greater for those eating the least amounts of fat. So we're sitting with the um, disturbing possibility that our low-fat diet recommendations for 40 years not only fattened us up, but they shortened our life. And that's unfortunate, because the low-fat dogma persists to this day. In the United States, and I imagine the same is true to a considerable degree in Australia, the majority of the public is still avoiding fat, thinking that it's somehow unhealthful. You know, the school lunch program in the United States lets kids have sugary, fat-free milk, but you can't have plain whole milk. The nutrition facts label maintains a line item for total fat. They want you to limit the total fat. Why? You know, the data I just showed you is that the more fat you're eating, the longer you're going to live. So in conclusion, improving diet quality may be less arduous and more successful than calorie restriction for long-term weight loss. A simple strategy to lower insulin and promote weight loss is to replace highly processed carbohydrates with healthy, high-fat foods, including nuts and nut butters, full-fat dairy, olive oil, even real dark chocolate. Notice I'm talking about replacing processed carbohydrates. So I'm not saying replacing whole fruits or vegetables or beans. There's certainly uh, a question that we need to answer. What is the optimal amount of fat and carbohydrate to eat? And that's probably going to depend upon other, endogenous, uh, other intrinsic factors, especially for people with diabetes. A very low carbohydrate intake is probably desirable. If you're physically active and otherwise healthy, you know, you probably can tolerate a lot of carbohydrate as long as it's not highly processed. Um, I would point out that I think that, uh, uh, that this diet will likely produce benefits beyond weight loss, including diabetes and heart disease. Another point I'd like to make is that focusing exclusively on sugar may be counterproductive if it leads to an increased consumption of processed starches. So, you know, you remove sugar, you replace it with white bread, are we really better off? And we ultimately need high-quality research. And then in my last slide, I'd leave, like to leave you with this closing thought. 
that these ideas may be provocative, but they're not new. The editors of a leading medical journal wrote the following. When we read that the fat woman has the remedy in her own, her own hands, or rather between her own teeth, there is an implication that obesity is merely the result of unsatisfactory dietary bookkeeping. Although logic suggests that body fat may be decreased by altering the balance sheet through diminished intake or increased output or both, the problem is not really so simple and uncomplicated as it is pictured. Now, this was written by the editors of JAMA in 1924. Um, I, we have a book signing uh, up front, so uh, I think before that we even have time for questions. I invite you to follow me on social media, and thank you very much for your attention. Thank you, David. I think the audience will agree with me when I say that was a superbly articulated argument for lower carbohydrate diets. So I'm going to open the um, audience to questions. We've got 25 minutes, 20, 20 minutes, 20. 20 minutes. And I'm going to ask the first question. Oh, I'm in trouble now. <laughs> so how low can you go in terms of carbohydrate expressed as a percentage of energy? How, what would you consider to be an ideal range? Well, it's virtually impossible to go to zero carbohydrate, even if you're just eating meat and absolutely no plants. Plants are the conventional source of, I mean, that's where most of our carbohydrate comes from. But even muscle meat will have a little bit of glycogen stored. Um, but we know that there are populations, like the Inuits, uh, as one example, up until the Western diet, uh, invaded their, their peaceful domain, populations throughout the Ice Ages that were eating essentially no, no plant products for most months of the year. And so their intake of carbohydrate would have been well below 5%, maybe 20 grams a day, just again, from what you get from um, glycogen and muscle. And um, they evidently survived, reproduced, breastfed, and were evidently fairly free of cardiovascular disease and possibly experienced less cancer as a result. So that's not to say that that extremely low intake of carbohydrate is optimal. We certainly can't feed the world's population on just animal products anymore. We're not all going to become hunter-gatherers again. Um, but it, it emphasizes a point that many people don't realize, that the human requirement for carbohydrate, at least for adults, is virtually nil, unlike protein, for which we have an absolute requirement, and fat, for which we have an absolute requirement. All right. I can see lots of hands going up. So I'm going to go from left to right. So at the back, please state your name and where you come from. Um, George Papadicolo. Uh, interested in uh, health uh, research. Um, 
I just wanted to ask the doctor something that actually came up in the World Diabetes Day uh, Symposium next door this very afternoon. Um, uh, a study that was referred to in terms of the varying responses of different individuals in terms of their uh, uh, glycogen um, uh, uh, adaptation uh, in terms of digestion. So I'm just wondering if you've come across in your uh, studies and research any evidence of the differing rates in which differing individuals due to genetic profiles process glycogen uh, through carbohydrates and sugar or possibly any other uh, of the nutritional uh, inputs and that would lead to obviously the possibility of much more personalized uh, food uh, diets uh, so which would be more do effective. You mean, uh, do you mean dietary starch? Uh, yeah, I think this is, study so was uh, to do with uh, dietary starch uh, particular. Yeah, so that's but, the, uh, in fact, we probably got the world's uh, expert on that just right next to me. Um, and this relates to, if I am understanding your question correctly, amylase, salivary amylase gene copy number. So salivary in our saliva, we have an enzyme called amylase, which breaks down starch and food. And that's why if you take a bite of a bagel and hold it in your mouth, mix it with saliva, for many people, although not for everybody, it'll start tasting sweet. So that's glucose popping off the starch backbone under the influence of this enzyme um, to show you how quickly it can get digested. But people vary in how much amylase protein enzyme they release in their saliva. And there's evidence that that amount has been under genetic selection, evol evolutionary selection. So the populations that start eating grain-based diets sooner may have higher copy number. And that copy number that you happen to have could influence your glycemic response to carbohydrate and what kind of a diet might work best for you. So pointing toward personalized nutrition. But you know, this is a, a topic for a, another symposium. All right. Um, questions. So one more there and one down the front here. So can you please, in the interest of getting through all the questions, keep your questions short, please. Hi, I'm Victoria. I just had a question um, with regard to the pounds loss study and then compared to the second one that I can't remember what it's called. So in the pounds loss study, you said that over the two years it was relatively equal and it was relatively small amount of weight lost. And then in the second study where the participants were all eating a meal that was provided for them every day, the weight loss was more significant. Do you have a comment about the compliance, the role of compliance in that, and the role of long-term realistic compliance for people living in Sydney or in a big right. city in the great, real world. Yeah, that's a great question. So we have to distinguish efficacy from effectiveness. These are This is a basic concept in, um, in practicality, you know, a basic concept in, in drug studies. First, we want to know what, how these diets are going to operate on the body in idealized situations. Is there, if people comply, and there's ways of getting people to comply, you know, we just have to have more rigorous designs to do so, um, which can include food provision over two years. You know, it's still gonna cost a lot less than a drug study. So we need to know if people are following it, will you get significant and sustained reductions in body weight 
cardiovascular disease risk, diabetes development. Then, once you have that knowledge, then we have to ask, well, how do they apply in what's called the real world? But the real world isn't static. If we understood that reducing carbohydrate by half would eliminate um, you know, hundreds of thousands of premature deaths a year, you'd have a very strong rationale to create public policy to change the environment, to make it easier to follow that diet. We tend to get these mixed up, and I think we need to think about them in logically different categories. Um, okay. Um, I'm curious about the overall focus of intermittent fasting and how it plays out with various types of diets. Right. Topical question. Um, does anybody, just out of curiosity, any intermittent fasters in the audience? Wow, okay. And um, of, the inter just, of the intermittent fasters, are you eating low-carb diets? If you're, uh, are there any intermittent fasters eating high-carb diets? Okay, so I think that's a very telling point. There's one person. So I think there is an important interaction between carbohydrate and fasting and your fat cells. So remember, if your fat cells are holding on to calories, if they're not trained, you know, the title of the book is, my book is Retrain Your Fat Cells. If your fat cells are untrained and they're in this calorie storage overdrive, what's going to happen if you try to fast? Right? They're not releasing their calories easily, so your blood sugar and your, the calories in your blood are going to go down, 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 and forget about an 18-hour fast. Just making it to the next meal is going to be difficult. I mean, look around today. People can't drive you know, to work without food in their car these days, at least in the United States. So intermittent fasting for people with insulin resistance, inflammation, and untrained fat cells is harmful, and it's going to be ineffective. But once your fat cells have been trained, and the best, you know, one way to do that is with a higher fat diet, so that they are ready to release their calories soon after the meal, well then, fasting is not going to be too hard. Because as the food leaves your digestive tract, your fat cells are going to be no problem. I got you covered. And those fat cells have enough calories not just to get you through a day or two. I mean, they can get you through weeks. I mean, there are other metabolic problems that would develop. So we have to think about the baseline metabolic state. Fasting is a two-edged sword. You know, it, it can be helpful for some people as an advanced practice, but I don't suggest people jump into it. It's, it, it's, it's just an extreme version of the failed practices that we currently have of telling people to eat less when their bodies say no. Does that answer your question? Lady up with the microphone. Hi. Um, my name is Marianne, and I'm interested in whether you've, your research has included cortisol. And I have two reasons for it. One is a personal one, because I've got an ACTH um, functioning tumour. And the other is from a public policy perspective, because people's lives are enormously more stressful in the relationship between carbohydrate-seeking and lack of satiety and stress. So your focus is on insulin, but my reading and my own experience suggests that um, cortisol, higher levels of cortisol, which um, 
many more people in the population are suffering from because of lifestyle and economics, whether you looked at the relationship between cortisol and insulin and adiposity. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. And I um, forgive me if I have uh, not done justice to cortisol. I, uh, in my model, I had stress up there, you know, as a um, placeholder for uh, cortisol. Stress does other things besides just raising cortisol. And there are other things that can raise cortisol besides stress you know, in some cases such as ACTH tumors, as you mentioned. Um, but absolutely, we know that cortisol directly influences fat cells um, and has multiple effects in the body. We need a little bit of it. Too much or cortisol in the wrong rhythm um, will certainly cause fat cells to dysfunction. So absolutely part of the model. Okay. <laughs> Well, um, that's a, a great question, and uh, we don't really have definitive clinical trials, um, but I have a, even though I feel basically pessimistic about U.S. politics right now, I feel very optimistic about the body. I think the body has enormous recuperative capacity. Um, I've certainly seen countless cases of diabetes resolving. I mean, we know that that happens after bariatric surgery, but I've also seen that, uh, you know, I think the only time, I mean, th there are some in the vegan low-fat community have case reports of people resolving on a vegan diet, which tends to be high in carbohydrate, although they oftentimes focus on whole plant foods, so it might be actually lower in glycemic load, but the most dramatic cases I've seen are in a low-carb diet. Diabetes is, by definition, carbohydrate intolerance. So what's the sense of giving people, as the American Diabetes Association, as I think the Australian Diabetes Association has recommended for so long, high-carb diets? I mean, if you had lactose intolerance, you wouldn't be given a lot of lactose. So it, like, it, and we, need, we, we do need the better clinical trials. In terms of calcification of the coronary arteries, I don't know how much of the calcium will change how quickly, but certainly the inflammatory milieu will change. And that's, that's the important thing. If you've got a plaque, even if it's you know, narrowing the artery a little bit, but it's stable, you've got a low inflammatory state, that's a very different situation for heart disease risk. Next question. Hi, I'm Haley. I'm from Bondi. Thank you. Um, really enjoying this talk. I'd like to ask about dairy and whether that causes inflammation. That could be another symposium. <laughs> no, I mean, so, I mean, Dairy is a complex one. We have, again, selective pressure, evolutionary pressure to adapt to dairy consumption, right? Because uh, the persistence of lactase in many Caucasian um, and some, some other populations suggested that the people who could eat dairy products would have a great survival advantage. And that's, you know, that's been present for several thousand years in our evolution. Um, at the same time, I mean, the purpose of dairy 
is to get a grazing mammal, like on the plains of Africa, to grow as fast as possible to escape predation you know, by the local lions. And so there are a lot of substances in dairy that are strongly anabolic. You know, so what is the consequence of eating a lot of this, having a lot of this anabolic stimulation in our body? You know, maybe one serving a day is fine, maybe three is too much. We don't have a lot of good data, but to me the bottom line is what you exchange for it. If you're eating a really high quality whole foods diet, adding more dairy is probably not gonna increase your quality and it may decrease it, especially if you're sensitive to it through inflammation or, or whatnot. If you're eating a low quality diet, as so many children are these days, dairy is gonna replace mainly processed carbohydrates and would likely be a benefit. So again, I think it's an interaction with the individual. Uh, Dr. Ludwig, my name is Rory Robertson. Thank you for coming to Australia and thank you for your um, profoundly important talk. Um, much of what you said seemed to echo uh, uh, Gary Taubes, the science journalist who's written about the carbohydrate hypothesis. Um, today is World Diabetes Day. Uh, you're right, the Australian Diabetes Council, Australian Diabetes, um, the National Health and Medical Research Council, all tell diabetics, type 2 diabetics, type, di type 1 diabetics, whatever, to eat 45 to 65% carbohydrates as a healthy diet. They say uh, diabetics should be eating uh, the same that everyone else is eating. Uh, as you said, it's been known for a century that uh, high-carb diets drive diabetes. I've got here a photocopy of a, a text I have, a medical text called The Principles and Practice of Medicine from 1923. This is from the most authoritative, um, it's the most authoritative text of the time. Uh, uh, Sir Professor William Osler, MD, Thomas McRae. So East Coast of America, Oxford, the whole lot. And it says on uh, on um, on the causes of, of diabetes, A, excess carbohydrate intake. That was the cause, and the cure, surprise, surprise, is remove excess consumption of carbohydrate. And they, um, they uh, have a diet here that says 10, 10 grams of carbs is just the right amount. So two questions. Quick. Sure, 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 sure. Be quick. So, so, yes, thanks. Um, so the question is, should we be suing diabetes organisations? Uh, I also think the, uh, the glycemic index uh, idea has been bastardised in that all the focus is on carbohydrates, but a genuine uh, low GI, low GL diet is composed of protein and fat with minimal carbohydrates. And my concern is... Uh, the the uh, the low GI approach in Australia has become so, so misguided. What's what's your second question? Uh, has the uh, low GI low GL approach been misguided and and misrepresented okay. to the point where in 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 Sydney we have people putting healthy low GI stamps on 99.4 percent sugar. Um, I wonder if you could defend that in a world Sorry. that's getting fat and. Should we? sue the diabetes associations. Um, 
You know, I, I, um, I'm, I don't feel like I am, that's a political question. And I don't feel like I'm qualified to answer that. There have been, you know, like some lawsuits in the United States against like McDonald's for unfair advertising. Um, and those don't typically succeed to get any money, but they just sort of raise awareness. I think what's really needed is um, more and better research because even though, you know, it sounds like you're a, it sounds like you feel, you, you, I understand, you know, you feel very passionate about this and, you know, I feel very passionate about it too, but even the two of us are unlikely to agree entirely and then there's a diversity of opinion in the room. What we really need is such high quality research and one study I would love to do is compare in people with type 2 diabetes, and this could be, you know, like, or pre-diabetes, but it could be a $50 million study. Give one group a ketogenic diet with your 20, 20 grams of carbohydrate. Give a second group um, a moderate carbohydrate diet, maybe, you know, 40%, and give the third group, you know, the 65% carbohydrate, and let's follow them for three years. Let's see what happens to diabetes conversion rates. And then, you know, we can change minds, hopefully, without having to resort to lawsuits. But um, in terms of the glycemic index and its use, I, I, I do want to distinguish between people with diabetes for whom, you know, I, I think we probably see things fairly similarly. It's a state of carbohydrate intolerance. And I think both for type 2, and there's some evidence that now type 1, we used to think, how can you not give carbohydrate to people with type 1, but it, there are thousands of people practicing it fairly successfully. We're researching that right now. I think for them, a very low carbohydrate diet, uh, as, my, as I interpret the evidence, is best. For the general public, I don't see evidence that everybody needs to eliminate carbohydrate. There are populations that have lived fairly healthy with much higher amounts of carbohydrate. They tend to be eating whole foods. They tend to be very physically active. And so for the general population, understanding how a 50% carbohydrate diet affects your blood sugar, I think is important. That's my view. Thank you. Now, um, I'm afraid we've run out of time for questions. So will you please join me in thanking Professor Ludwig for his beautiful presentation tonight. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.